Our scripture reading today comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. We'll actually pick it up just a bit before chapter 16, at the end of chapter 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story of David being chosen as king starts off a, a little bit like a, a fairy tale, if you think about it. There's the, the parade of characters. There's the unlikely lesser younger sibling who becomes the chosen one. It makes me think a bit of the, the story of Cinderella, which you may have heard or seen in a Disney movie. The story of Cinderella begins with death, the, the death of her mother and, and her father, uh, this aloof guy who seems to not ever be in the picture, marries this evil woman. And Cinderella's new stepmother and her new two stepsisters uh, oppress her and treat her like a maid. They say, Cinderella, fetch the water, uh, mend my dress, sweep the floor, clean the fireplace. 
And that's how she gets her name, Cinderella, because she's all covered with the ashes of cleaning the fireplace. And then somehow, uh, when she's working in the kitchen, she hears this invitation from the prince for all the young women of the kingdom to come to this ball where he will choose his princess. Now, her sisters make her help, him, help them get ready, they, uh, and so she doesn't have any time to get ready herself. And when they, she says she's going to come to the ball too, they laugh and say, you have nothing to wear. But then she gets help from her magical friends, the mice and the pumpkins, and I don't even remember all the parts. And somehow she gets to the ball in this beautiful dress, in a pumpkin coach with her mice attendants and a, her glass slippers on her feet. And somehow the prince chooses her the unlikely one, and her alone to dance with for the whole evening. And they dance, and when the clock strikes midnight, Cinderella has to dash out of the party before the magic expires, and, you know, she loses her glass slippers on the step, and the prince uses that slipper to find her, and he chooses her again to be his princess, and she lives happily ever after. Now, of course, the story of David is not a fairy tale. It's not a happily ever after story. If we were to go through the whole life of David, uh, it is not a beautiful tale But God knows his heart. In fact, almost every time God chooses someone in the Bible, God chooses the unlikely one. You know, it's not the choice we would expect. God doesn't choose the way we choose. God chooses Abraham, this guy from Ur of the Chaldeans, way far away from the promised land, to be the the leader, the first of God's chosen family. God chooses Jacob, the younger of the two sons, over his older brother Esau. God chooses Moses, this runaway Egyptian who killed a guy who's off in the far side of the desert to be his voice to the people, to bring them out of Egypt. God's choices don't make sense to people. They didn't make sense to people then, and they don't make sense to us now sometimes. Who is this God, we ask ourselves? Who is this God who chooses the lesser one, who chooses the weaker one, the smaller one? Why does God choose us? Why does God choose anybody for that matter? And it only makes sense if we think it makes sense because we've gotten so used to the idea that we don't realize that this is a mysterious, strange, radical, beautiful God whom we worship. Because God chooses whom God chooses. God doesn't see like we see. God sees the heart. And this story of Samuel and David begins with the heart begins with Samuel's heart. He's blinded by grief. He's torn apart because King Saul, God's first chosen king over the people of Israel, has been rejected by God. He left him in the battlefield where Saul did not do what God commanded and Samuel had to go and and rebuke him. And he may still be king over Israel, but he is not God's king anymore. His royal line, said Samuel, will end with him. And Samuel returns to his home in Ramah, or Ramah uh, heavy with grief. And Saul could have been a good king. He could have been a godly king. He could have led the people to victory, but he kept giving in to pressure, pressure from his army, pressure from himself to, to do the, the wrong thing, to act against God's word. And Samuel is not just borne down with grief. He is old, too. He, he does not have the energy to be the ruler of the people, to be the judge over the people, and to lead them through the, the thicket of, of judges into the good life that God has for them. Many years have passed since Samuel first heard the voice of the Lord. Remember last week we heard, he was a little boy and God called to him, Samuel, Samuel, and he responded the right way then. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And for much of his life, God has continued to reveal himself to Samuel through his word. 
And Samuel hears God speak, and he does what God says. But this time, God has a a gentle rebuke for Samuel. He says, how long will you mourn for Saul? How long will you mourn for Saul? See, Samuel may grieve for Saul and for the loss of the king and for what could have been for Israel and for the people. Not that he thought it would go well. From the very beginning, he was the one who warned them that the king would oppress the people, that he would take their young men for the military and he would take the young women to serve in his house. And when the first... when they wanted a king, but they, they wanted to be strong like their neighbors and to win in battle. God told them, it's not going to go well for you. And here God tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil. It's this symbol of military power and strength. But he's supposed to fill it with oil, this symbol of spiritual power and anointing. God sends Samuel on a mission. It's a mission to Bethlehem, this small town south of Jerusalem, kind of a suburb these days. And it's not far from Samuel's home in Ramah, maybe a day's walk. And God says, I have chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. Already God has made his choice. Samuel just needs to hear, to listen, to see like God sees and anoint the right one. And it may seem like a simple task to you and me, but Samuel knows that is a dangerous task to do because he knows Saul's heart. He knows that Saul is just a few miles north of Bethlehem, probably a less than a half day's walk or ride to, to, where, uh, to Bethlehem. And if, Sam, if Saul finds out what Samuel is doing, that he's anointing a new king, he, he's going to get violent. He's going to come and, and do something terrible to the family of Jesse. So Samuel is afraid. But he's afraid because he's looking at things from a human perspective. Because this is God's call, God's mission, God's chosen king, and God will protect him. But what's curious is how God chooses to protect him. See, Samuel tells, or God tells Samuel to go with a cover story. Uh, he should bring a heifer and he should say that it's there, he's there for a sacrifice. This is one of the few times in the Bible where God tells people to be dishonest in order to get the right thing done, to use religion as a cover for what really needs to happen. But that's what God told him to do. And it works on two levels in two different ways. Because when he arrives, the leaders of Bethlehem are terrified. They're terrified that he comes with this word from the Lord, maybe a word of rejection, maybe a word of judgment. They don't know. Maybe they're afraid that Samuel has something against them, and they know that the political situation is dangerous in Israel. And it worked. This plan of a sacrifice helps calm the leaders down. Okay, we know what Samuel's here for. We can do that. But the second way it works is because no one realizes what Samuel is up to. Not even Jesse and his sons. They they think they're there for a sacrifice. Samuel says, I come in peace. And he tells them to prepare themselves to consecrate, to wash themselves for the sacrifice. Uh, The the days of separation, the bathing, the clean clothes, uh, eating the right foods. And Samuel helps them do all the right rituals so they're ready for the sacrifice. And then comes the funniest part of the story, the parade of sons that pass in front of Samuel. Uh, One by one, Jesse's sons come in front of him, and it's easy to imagine it kind of like a a beauty pageant on a stage or or a fashion show where they come down the runway and we got to judge which is the best one. But it was probably something more like meeting an important person, a a king, a president, where you get your one chance to come before them and say your one word or, or hear a word of blessing from them. And Samuel is looking for the one that God will show to him. But again, he is looking with human eyes. He's not listening to God at first. And when the first one comes by, Samuel thinks, 
Surely this is the Lord's anointed standing before the Lord. That's my man. He's tall. He's handsome. He, he looks like a king, but he is not the one. Samuel might look at him with human eyes, but God speaks to him in that moment. And this is the key verse of the passage. Do not consider his appearance or height, God says, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. The Lord, uh, people look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel sees one way, but God sees differently. Samuel looks for height and, and handsomeness, the, the very same things that he saw in Saul way back when he anointed him for king. But that's the wrong thing to look for. It did not work out so well for Saul. God chooses based on the heart. And so six more sons come and parade by in front of Samuel. And uh, Samuel says for each one, the Lord has not chosen this one. And their parade of sons ends with seven of them. None of them chosen. And there's this confused father. What on earth is going on? Why go to all this trouble for a sacrifice? And then Samuel asks if there is another son. And it turns out that there is an eighth son, David, the, the youngest one. He doesn't even count. He's out in the fields caring for the sheep. Someone has to do it while everyone else comes to the sacrifice. So it might as well be the youngest one. He's not going to amount to anything anyway. Uh, the, the smallest, the, the runt of the litter, he is nowhere near as impressive as his older brothers. Or so they'd say. But Samuel puts his foot down. He, he says, this sacrifice will not proceed. We will not go forward. We will not sit down until all the sons are here. So they send for David and bring him in from the fields and oh, by the way, he's handsome. The, the author of the story can't help but say he is a handsome guy. He's, he's the youngest. He's the smallest of the family, but he is glowing with health. He, he's handsome. He's easy on the eyes. But God does not look at outward appearances, but it sure doesn't hurt, apparently. And now God speaks to Samuel again. He says, rise and anoint him. This is the one and Samuel is listening. And finally, he sees as God sees here. See, God sees the heart. God sees David's heart. He is a man after God's own heart, the scriptures say. Now, he's not perfect. We know he's a human and a sinner, and he'll sin again and again throughout his uh, kingship. But he will worship God with all his heart. He will again and again pour his heart and his life out before God in song and in praise. He will write many psalms. He will sing many songs. He will dance with abandon before the ark of God. And so Samuel takes that horn, that symbol of military power and spiritual power, and he fills it, he has it filled with oil, and he pours it on David's head, and everyone is watching. This is not a private ceremony. Everyone sees his brothers are watching and they see the oil pouring down his head through his hair onto his robes. D did they know what that oil meant in that moment? Because anointing kings wasn't really a common thing at this time. But no one told Saul, so maybe they did not realize what it meant. He was just a, a young man with a heart that God chose and now he's this spirit-filled future king because from that moment on, the spirit of God is powerfully upon him. God sees him. Samuel sees him. And God chooses David. And Samuel's job is done. It's not even clear that he finishes the sacrifice that he came to do and he goes home to Ramah because God sees differently than people do. That's why we sometimes say things to each other like appearances can be deceiving. Uh, you've seen talent shows on TV that are a great example of this, where someone gets up on stage and then bursts out in song. 
About 10 years ago, there was a story of a, a rumpled, dowdy old woman who walked out on a stage in Britain. Uh, Britain's Got Talent was the name of the show. And she had gray hair with a, a mess of raggedy curls, and she had a, a beige dress on that did nothing for her figure, and she was wearing tall white heels that looked really uncomfortable. And when the judges asked her some questions, she answered them. But she was so nervous, she could hardly get a word out. She couldn't hear them well. But she said she had trained as a professional singer. But for her whole life, she had never gotten a break. And she chose to sing this song from Les Miserables called, I Dreamed a Dream. And her name was Susan Boyle, by the way. When she opened her mouth, she began to sing. And and she began to sing with this rich, powerful, confident voice that blew everyone away. People got on their feet. Their jaws dropped. Even the easy opening parts of the song were filled with this emotion and strength. And then the song gets more complicated, and she dominated every single note. She sang with this grace and confidence. and, and, And she sang her heart out before that stage. And the judges were amazed. They gushed. They praised her. Even Simon Cowell, that that, uh, grumpy old Brit who is never impressed with anything, he gave her this resounding yes. Because appearances can be deceiving. And as much as we love a good underdog story like David's or Susan Boyle's or Cinderella's, we need to remember that we are the underdogs in God's story. That God is the God who chooses us again and again. Not because of anything we've done or how we look or what we say. It's all because of what Jesus did on the cross. And and Jesus' life and death and resurrection show that God chooses in unexpected ways. It's this thing we see happening here even now in David's life. God's redemption happens in unexpected ways. That is in suffering, in weakness, in smallness and youngness. God's power is revealed. And even in death, even death on a cross, most of all in death, God's power is revealed because that's who God is. God chooses whom God chooses. God works by how he works, not by human standards. God chose what was weak and foolish, what was uh, broken and sinful and lost. God chose what was not in order to shame what is, to show the wise and the powerful and the whole that God's way is not our way, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, that God sees differently than we do. And thanks be to God, because that is the grace of our God who comes to David, who chooses him out of this family, out of his youngness, to be king over Israel. So thanks be to God, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God of grace, your grace in choosing David, in choosing us, is beyond our understanding and imagination. We, we think that, that somehow we deserve it, but we know that we don't. That it is only your grace and love for us that chooses us out of the midst of sin and suffering and darkness to be your people. And we, and we ask that you choose us again and again to redeem us and save us and heal us and make us whole. And that like your servant David, we may be your chosen ones in the world. Your people, serving and loving and praising you. We, we give you thanks and praise for your word, for how through your word you speak to us and give us the grace to live as your chosen people in the world. God, we're amazed at who you are and at how your, your choosing works in ways that we don't understand, but that you choose for our good. 
Continually, you choose our good because you love us. We praise you and thank you in Jesus Christ for what he's done, for his grace on the cross, for for choosing us in his body to be part of him, to be found in him, to be knit together into a people, into a bride, into a, a, a glorious sacrifice before your throne. And one day in your kingdom, when it is come and whole and complete, that we may give praise and thanks with all your saints before your throne. We long for that day, God. So choose us again and again. And may we see you choosing us and and see as you see. See ourselves as your chosen people. For it is in Jesus Christ that we are found. In his name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God's choosing works in ways that we don't understand and it seems sometimes to us like God's love, God's way of choosing is reckless. It is unimaginable to us because it doesn't fit our human way of understanding. So I'd like to uh, uh, lead us in singing a song called Reckless Love as a, a reflective response to the sermon. You may remain seated, though the words will be on screen and you're welcome to sing along as you wish. Uh, so the praise team will lead us in this um, offertory reflection song of praise. <laughs> 